basically a baptism confection, if you would, for those who were to be baptized as they confessed uh, the summary of the gospel. And, uh, and they would memorize this uh, and recite it before the church. And so it's fitting for us, as the church has said this confession for 2,000 plus years, for us to do it. But as we recite, we'll do it line by line. There's a couple of phrases in there that I just want to prep you for so that you know what it means and what it doesn't mean. Uh, there's one statement about after Christ died that he descended into hell, and that's likely a reference to 1 Peter 3, where Jesus, in between his death and resurrection, preached victory to the spirits in prison and the abode of the dead. And so it's not a sense in which Christ himself went to hell. And then there's a confession of, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church. That's a Catholic Church with a uh, uh, little c, not a Roman Catholic Church. It means universal. I believe in the church universal throughout the globe and throughout all time. And so as we recite those things, don't let them stumble you. And so let me invite you to recite with me as the words pop up on the screen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. As you do so, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And as you do so, I, I, I couldn't help but just uh, see a theme as we got to hear the gospel preached in the Cahill's testimony and and uh, seeing this great hope that they have. And, and then as we sang Christ our sure and steady anchor and sang Be Thou My Vision. And as we sang of the great truths of, uh, of O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, we are broken people. And I, I think we have sung in, in the spirit, the, the Beatitudes. We've expressed our, our poor and broken spirit, our mourning, and, uh, and our meekness, and, and our hunger, and our longing, and our thirst for, for righteousness in his kingdom. And, and that's the posture by which Christ calls us to, and I, and I sense that in all of our hearts this morning, and I trust that as we now open up his word, that we would continue to have a posture, not of passivity, but a posture of attentiveness to hear the word of the Lord uh, proclaimed. And so I invite you to follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Our Lord said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That last verse, I imagine, struck our chords, maybe. Oh, is this Jesus we're reading? Those words seem frightening, defeating, hopeless. How on earth, you might be saying, can I have a righteousness that qualifies me to enter the kingdom of heaven? Maybe you're thinking about the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They, they, were, they were meticulous, if you would, about the law and the traditions of, their, of the ancestors and the interpretation of the law. You know, the law might say this. Well, let's take it just a little bit further so that we ensure ourselves of not breaking the law. They, they were the rule keepers, if you will, and they were very good at it. They were those super holy people, if you will. People would look at these people and say, that's what holiness is. That's what righteousness is. And, and then Jesus says, well, they have no shot. And your righteousness must exceed theirs if you want to enter my kingdom. Jesus says other things that are of similar shocking value. He'll say in verse 48 of this sermon, Chapter 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 7, verse 21, he'll say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now you might be hearing these things and say, Chase, I thought this was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news for sinners. Where's the hope in that? Where's the good news? Has Jesus not read Paul? You might say and at some level. No, he hasn't read Paul at this point. And Paul hadn't been written yet. Paul hadn't converted. Nevertheless, Jesus' words are not in contradiction to the gospel or the rest of the New Testament. What I, I want to press into our hearts today is that his words are the gospel. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. So when we hear Jesus calling for obedience, we need to have a category for that. I think many have an allergic reaction to any commands in Scripture. No, 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 that's not gospel. I would say, then what are you going to do with most of the Bible? I believe we have a truncated gospel, a narrow gospel. A gospel, yes, that is true, but we maybe distorted it and, and, and viewing it as merely if I, I ascend to some facts, I can affirm the Apostles' Creed. Well, that's all that we mean by faith alone, if you will. A mere intellectual affirmation of facts about Jesus. But the problem is, is when we come to the gospel... And we're reading the sermon that Jesus preached, which we find out is him preaching the gospel of the kingdom, chapter 4, verse 23. 
we struggle because we don't see those facts. Where's the altar call that says, believe on me in my death, burial, and resurrection, and you'll be saved? We don't see that. Doesn't mean it's not there. We're getting there in the story. But if we don't see Romans 10, 9, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Well, then it must not be the gospel. But yet we find in verse 23 that Jesus was teaching in their synagogues, this is chapter 4, the gospel of the kingdom. We're getting what he preached, the gospel message that Jesus proclaimed. In verse 17 of chapter 4, Jesus was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's just another way of speaking of the gospel. And so we, we, we struggle, I think. Christians have struggled with the Sermon on the Mount. And, and just so you know, this morning, we're just covering verses 17 through 20, which I think are his, he's getting into the body of it. He's making some bold assertions that are going to help us understand the rest of the sermon. And so this is kind of preparatory for the weeks to come. But I think it's necessary for us to understand because we are in new territory. We're not in the epistles, which Paul spells it out almost logically for us. We don't have to do as much work, if you will, in listening. We do need to listen, but it, he just kind of is clear. He just, he's actually summarizing it for us. But Jesus is clear. He's just He's, he's, he's tugging a little bit more. He's, he's probing deeper. He's, he's causing you to move from the superficialness and to truly understand what it means to follow him. What does it mean, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Jesus is unpacking what it means to be under his lordship. We just think it's a rattling off of the tongue, but it's understanding him as Lord. What does it mean that all authority in heaven and earth have been given to him? He's really unpacking for us what we saw when he calls the first disciples and he says, follow me. That's the gospel. Follow Jesus. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is what that gospel is. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. But because we struggle with commands, calls to obedience. We, we, we think, well, that's not gospel. Many Christians have made, I think, two main errors when reading the Sermon on the Mount. You may find yourself on either one of these things, but I want to kind of correct us. This is all preparatory. One, some have taught that Jesus is merely teaching in the Sermon on the Mount a more faithful way of living in the Christian life. Like, this is optional. That's, that's kind of the tenor of it. That here's, you know, you really want to be my, uh, uh, you know, super di disciples. You want to cash in on the reward part. Well, then the Sermon on the Mount's for you. But if you don't choose to do this, and they hang it on verse 19, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. And so the idea here is uh, that you're some bottom-rung Christian. You're just going to miss out on greater mansions and glory. And so they undercut, I think, the actual meaning of the sermon because verse 20 is a definition of what the least in the kingdom means. You won't enter. 
That's what he's talking. It's a play on words. You relax the least of these commandments. It's kind of a sense you think those commandments aren't important. Well, then you'll be least. It's, it's Jesus' reversal of everything you think of. The great will be brought down. The small will be lifted up. He, he, it's a play on words here. And he unpacks it for you in verse 20. For, let me explain, let me clarify, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. They are the least in the kingdom. And so they've, they've done that. And, and that teaching has been devastating, I think, for many in the church. And why? I think we often now hear the testimonies of, you know, I became a Christian at this point, but then I later truly believed. Because it created almost a sense, can I get you just to repeat this prayer? Can I get you just to recite these facts? Great, let's get you baptized. We'll check you off on our roll. We'll send it to denominational numbers. And then we wonder why many of them cannot be found. But then we hear our testimonies, not today necessarily, but we've heard them. It's almost a similar mantra. But then I truly understood the gospel. And so that's devastating, I think, for many. And I believe that. I, I believe in some way that was kind of my MO growing up. Just so you know, my parents set standards and goals. I remember... One was, you must have a 3.0 if you want to get your driver's license. And I barely got that 3.0. That, that was like, okay, that's all I got to do. And then my parents would be upset. They'd say, why aren't you trying harder? You said 3.0. They rounded that 2.999 up, and I got it. So that's the deal, right? That, that was how I operated. Well, that's also how I thought about the kingdom. Okay, if I can just get in and I can have my cake and eat it too over here, I can live however I want, I can have these things, but it's, okay, I've done what you said, good, I'm in. I don't care about the rewards. That was honestly what I thought. And so I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Another error, and I, this one isn't as egregious, but I think it undercuts what Jesus is saying, and and some have taken that last verse in 48 of chapter 5, verse 48, where Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And, and they've, they've taken that to say, okay, okay, Jesus is just expounding upon uh, the impossible standard that no one can meet and basically leading us to self-defeatism. I can't be perfect as God is perfect. So... I'll just trust Jesus. And there's an element about that that is true. When we can be, are confronted with the law of God, we see his perfect holiness and righteousness and that we, we could never measure up. But when Jesus says you must be perfect, he's not talking about sinlessness. He's talking about wholeness. And we're going to unpack that a little bit later. But the, the Pharisees, the scribes, they were not complete. They were whitewashed tombs. They were two-faced. They were hypocrites. They weren't transformed from the inside out. They had an incomplete human righteousness. But Jesus is calling us to be whole persons, transformed by his gospel. And so it's not a, a, a level of, you can't attain this, so don't worry about it, just trust me. It is, it is a righteousness that will characterize his followers. 
And so repentance and faith, brothers and sisters, are two sides of one coin. They're not faith is the gospel, repentance is added onto it. No, it's repent and believe. It's the same call. You must turn from your sins, your way of living, and follow Christ. Do you believe that? And if you believe, you follow. It's not a sense of, I believe, but I'm not going to follow. Do you understand? This is what it means to be followers of Jesus. And in fact, this is no different than what we find at the end of the gospel. We, We talk about the Great Commission, right? Well, listen to what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So now he's telling his disciples, go, therefore, make disciples. Well, what do you, how do you do that? Baptizing them. That's a command. You must be baptized if you're going to follow Jesus. And he goes on. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We have the Sermon on the Mount in mind. We should be calling people, when we're preaching the gospel, it should look somewhat like Jesus' call. It should be calling people to turn from their sin and follow Christ. And if you, Jesus says, do not keep and teach these commandments, you will be least in the kingdom. If you don't preach this gospel, Jesus says. And actually, that's exactly what Paul is doing. If you don't preach the one and only gospel, you're anathema. And even Romans, if you you remember, he talks about the gospel as the message of the obedience of faith. He he brings that together. There's an obedience factor. Elsewhere, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. That's the defining mark of the true believer. They follow Jesus. Now, is this a perfect, sinless? No, 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 no. But if you look at the video of our life, we're in the sheep pack following our Savior. Yeah, some of us wander and he gets the rod and he pulls us back, but we're still following. But the sheep that's in the other fold and and walking in the other direction and doesn't respond to the shepherd's voice, well, they're not following. They're not his disciples. So this morning, I want to exhort us to a greater righteousness, if you will. That's going to be maybe the theme that we unpack for the rest of chapter 5. What does that mean? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, I I want that righteousness, I can tell you that. Well, what does that mean? What does that greater righteousness entail? I want to exhort to us that that greater righteousness entails a whole person way of living that accords with Christ's character, will, and kingdom. That's what I want to put before us over the next several weeks as we unpack each of these categories of anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving your enemies. He's going to show us how his disciples relate to these things. So I want to unpack what this passage means as we consider two points this morning. And as you can tell, that doesn't mean the sermon is shorter. Uh, It's just two points. Um, But uh, two points this morning. 
Number one, Christ is the greater Moses. That's kind of a point that he's trying to lay down. And then Christ calls us to a greater righteousness. Christ is a greater Moses, verses 17 and 18. Matthew records for us, as we're getting into the Sermon on the Mount, the setting by which Jesus delivered this sermon. You may remember in in verse 1 of chapter 5, Jesus, seeing the crowds, ascended the mountain. And and when we were in that passage, I, I, I made the remark that in the book of Exodus, that phrase is, he ascended the mountain, is only found there. And it is used repeatedly of only one person. That is Moses. And it always spoke about Moses ascending the mountain to meet with God on Mount Sinai. Already with Jesus' birth narrative and his story from his flight to and from Egypt, we think of Herod killing the, the little children, the newborn babies, Matthew has been setting us up and directing our thoughts and attention to say, this story sounds a lot like the Exodus. And Jesus sounds a lot like Moses. That's what he's trying to do. And by the time we then come to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's putting those pieces together. You should have been thinking of Moses. Now, let me present Jesus as a greater Moses. Jesus is a new Moses, if you will, Matthew wants us to see. Leading his people out of bondage to sin and into the new promised land, the kingdom. And like Moses who ascended the mountain to receive the revelation of God's righteousness in the law written on stone tablets, so Jesus has ascended the mountain of God and is now the one who receives God's word and writes them on human hearts. That's what he's going to do. That's why we read Deuteronomy chapter 18 where where Moses declares to the people, there is a prophet who is coming who is like me. And he says, listen to him. Listen to him. And what he will do is he will embody the words of the Lord and he will speak them to you. Where Israel could not bear to stand at that mountain. That mountain of thunder and lightning. With hard hearts. They would have been judged. But we are to be like 5-1. When Jesus sat down on the mountain, his disciples came to him. It's just a beautiful picture. and There's narrative here. It's a story. They come to this one. And they receive the righteousness of God. And so what does Jesus say here in our text? He he comes to them and he's moved through the Beatitudes. He said who we are. We're salt and light of the world. And then he starts to talk about himself. He says, do not think, do not have this thought in your mind that I've somehow come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish the law, but rather I've come to fulfill it. Come to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Why does Jesus say this? To us, we're like, okay, that wasn't a question I was really concerned about. Why, Why would Jesus come and say, I haven't come to abolish the law? 
Well, this is because this is what he was being accused of by the scribes and Pharisees. You break the law, Jesus. Your preaching goes against Moses. And and this is how that would happen. We'll read when we get to chapter 12 of Matthew that that Jesus will, will be healing people, particularly on the Sabbath day. The rest. We'll read of a story where Jesus' disciples are, are walking through the fields on a Sabbath day and they're plucking the heads of grain and popping them like candy in their mouth. And the scribes and Pharisees see them and, and they say, you break the Sabbath. In chapter 15 of Matthew, his disciples don't participate in the ritual washings, the traditions of the scribes um, before they eat. Matthew eleven five, Jesus touches the lepers whom the law of Moses said are untouchable. But yet Jesus says, I'm not doing away with the law. I'm not, I'm not breaking it. I'm not abolishing it. Rather, I've come to fulfill the law of Moses and everything written in the prophets. He says, not one iota. An iota was the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. And probably in Aramaic, he's referring to the smallest letter in their alphabet here. Or the dot, a stroke of a pen, an accent marker, a comma, if you will. Not even a stroke of the pen of the law is going to be abolished or passed away until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying something very significant here. All the Old Testament, all the laws... All the things that the prophets were were saying, they spoke of me. And so I'm not the breaking of the law, I'm the completion of it. I'm the end, I'm the finish line, if you will. I'm the things that the law was always pointing to. So yes, yes, I am healing on the Sabbath. And it looks like you to you, I am breaking the law, but I am the rest that the Sabbath was pointing to. Come, find rest for your weary souls in me. Do you see that? Yes, the the leper is the one that you would be infected with, but I take upon all your diseases. I absorb them and I make you clean. So now you can be clean. Yes, I know the the food laws and all the things, but I want you to know that I I have completed, I have made all people clean, therefore all foods are clean. And so in other words, what Jesus is saying is, you need to understand all the Old Testament in light of my revelation, in light of me. I'm the prophet that Moses was speaking of, and you must listen to me. Because if you don't listen to me, you will relax the least of the commandments of God. You actually can't keep God's law. Because you don't know the purpose of it. And it all is speaking of me. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is why it causes him all the trouble. Because he is going after the scribes and Pharisees' incomplete righteousness. A pseudo-righteousness, if you will. Jesus makes a similar statement at the end of the gospel in Matthew 24, 35. Listen, he says, heaven and earth will pass away. We just saw that in here. Heaven, the law won't be abolished until heaven and earth pass away. 
Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What is he, what is he doing here? My words are the fulfillment of the law. Yes, that old era, it is a sense passing away, but it, there's continuity because I'm the one who speaks eternally. And, and I'm the fulfillment of the law. I'm the embodiment of the law. And because my words will never pass away, the law will be upheld. So the law and the prophets are not nullified in Christ. They're completed in Christ. As one ancient writer reflecting on Jesus' words said this, listen carefully, Christ's commandment contains the law, but the law does not contain Christ's commandment. Therefore, whoever fulfills the commandments of Christ implicitly fulfills the commandments of the law. This is what Jesus will mean when he says, uh, you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. Because when it ferments, those wineskins have already been stretched. They'll burst. They can't contain the newness that I'm bringing. You must put them in new wineskins. And so the, I hope you're beginning to see. I know this is more theological and this is more depth. But you will miss almost everything that Jesus is trying to tell you if you don't understand these things. So what we learn from Jesus is that he is the point of the whole Old Testament. And so we can read the Old Testament as our scriptures. Because when we read the sacrifices, we don't read them as things I must do now, do we? I now read them as what Christ has done. And now I read them rightly in light of the new revelation that's come in Jesus. And so this is why we're not breaking the law when we don't offer sacrifices in the temple for our sins. But those non-believing Jews would say you're breaking the law. But we're not. They are. Because they have rejected the one whom the law was pointing to. So Jesus fulfills that, those commands for us. He's the substance and ultimate goal of what the whole Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to. He's the rest that the Sabbath anticipated. Therefore, he's not contradicting or breaking the law. He's the goal and purpose of the law. And so this way, Jesus is a new Moses, a greater Moses. And he's now going to call us to a greater righteousness. And that's where this gets a little more tangible for us this morning. Christ calls us to a greater righteousness in verses 19 through 20. And so with the arrival of Jesus' first coming, he's brought about the fulfillment of the law. And with this fulfillment, God's law is now, what I want you to see, written on his people's hearts. So that their whole person is transformed to live according to God's character, God's will, and God's kingdom. Jesus saves you from your hardness of heart, your deadness, and he makes you alive so that you may walk in obedience to him now. That's what Jesus is doing. And so those who come to him, listen. Because the scales have fallen off our eyes, our ears have been unplugged, our hearts have been softened. Paul tells us how all that works, if you will. He tells us that's the Holy Spirit doing that work in your life. That's called regeneration. Jesus is just focusing on the human side of things. Come follow me. And we respond to his voice and we do that. 
But he's no less preaching the gospel than Paul. Paul's just telling you how it works. And so God's law is now written on our hearts. Simply put, Jesus writes his authoritative word on your heart so that you may become like him. And he does this by teaching his disciples the true intent of the law. So let's, let's look, at, look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, I mean, that's some gutsy talk right there. You've heard it said by these guys, but listen to me, that's what he's saying. That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. What is he doing? Yes, murder is breaking the law. You can't, you can't get out from that. But just because you haven't murdered doesn't mean you haven't broken the law. You see what he's doing? Yeah, you might be able to get that box checked. But have you ever insulted your brother or sister? See what Jesus is doing? He's going after the heart where all the abundance of sin flows out of. He's going to transform you from the inside out. Where the Pharisees were just externals. They were not whole. They were not what Jesus means perfect. They were incomplete, imbalanced, hypocrites. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter behind murder is hatred. And yeah, I think most of us, I, I hope all of us, but most of us can say, I don't have the murder one on my plate. But none of us can say, I've never hated someone. And if you relax even the least of those commandments, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that? Oh, you can look great on the outside. But it matters what's on the inside. Are you pure in heart? The Beatitudes speak of. Are you broken in spirit? Are you meek and merciful? Jesus is going after your whole life, not just what can be seen. So Jesus is presenting himself as a greater Moses with a greater righteousness. And he's greater in the sense that Jesus' words, these words, transform your life, don't they? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you believe him and you want to follow him, you're listening to these words and you're saying, yes, I want that. And you're stepping closer to the light. And his words are grace-filled and they are wooing you and, and his words sanctify you. He says this in John 17, 17, as he prays for his believers, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And so if you come to this passage, you think, well, this isn't gospel because it's all a bunch of commands. Well, then you don't understand how Jesus' words give life to your soul. They call you to follow him. And he's a person who's not two-faced. He's a person who's not hypocritical. Yes, he embodies these things perfectly. I'm not suggesting we have to be perfect, but in that sense of the word, 
But if we're followers of Christ, it's going to look like something. It's going to look like, I don't want to hate people. I don't slander people. Now, I'm sure we can all think of moments we have, right? But I'm repentant. I'm broken in spirit. I'm poor in spirit. I mourn over my sin. I'm not okay with it. And therefore, it drives me to greater Christ-likeness. This isn't to gain acceptance of Jesus. This is on the basis of because he has accepted you and now you are his disciple that you now look like his disciple. That's what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. So as one Bible teacher rightly states here, Jesus is not talking about beating the scribes and Pharisees at their own game, but about a different level or concept of righteousness altogether. Some of you are struggling with that. You haven't quite understood the gospel. You think, oh, I just need to come to church every Sunday. If I just go to church every Sunday, or if I, if I can look the part, then I'll be acceptable to God. You're trying to do it and conjure up a righteousness that comes from the outside and cleans you up. But the problem is the, the defiling, the uncleanliness is in your heart. And you must confess that in your utter dependence upon Christ and say, Lord, make me clean. I believe you can do that. Like the leper. Jesus says, do you believe I can make you clean? He says, I do. Okay, I'll make you clean. Come follow me. And if you believe that, he works in you from the inside out. So Jesus isn't talking about perfection in the sense of sinlessness here. He's talking about a sense of being complete, a whole person. James says the same thing. He calls it pure and undefiled religion. Oh, yeah, you claim you have faith. Well, show me the works. Does your faith work? One time I uh, had a Ford Explorer, and we lost, no, we bought it used, and we only had one key. And I wanted a spare. And so I took it to Lowe's and, and I got them to make a copy of it. And that key looked just like the key that I had. But when I went in to put it in ignition, it wouldn't turn. It wouldn't turn the engine. It wouldn't start. Well, why isn't that? I don't know exactly how it all works, but there's something on the inside of the key that it didn't have that made it work. And so it looked like it. It claimed to be able to do it. It could fit right in the ignition, but it couldn't deliver. What showed itself, it didn't work. It showed itself to be an invalid key. That's what James is saying. Oh, you claim to have faith. Well, show me your faith. Pure undefiled religion isn't a, uh, I say one thing, I look in the mirror and I, and, I, and I move away and forget everything I saw. But no, this is the one who's not nearly a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And that looks like caring for the least of these. It looks like for the widows and the orphans. It's going to manifest itself in some way. And James is really just reflecting on his brother's teaching. He's reflecting on the, probably the Sermon on the Mount. He's just doing it in pithy statements. 
And so what Jesus is getting after, and I would say all the New Testament is getting after, is you can't be one thing on the outside that you aren't on the inside. And Jesus says, I'll transform you from the inside out. And certainly this is the process of sanctification where we're more and more made into his image. But how does that happen? It happens as we listen and obey the law of Christ. This is what he, I'm a greater Moses. Here is my words. Here's my teaching. Here's my commandments. You must heed these words. There's an idea out there that Christians are somehow not under any law. I think I know what they mean. Yeah, we're not under the condemnation of the Old Testament law. We're not under it. But that Paul doesn't even say, I'm not under the law of the... He says, I'm under the law of Christ. To the Jew, I become a Jew. To the Greek, I become the Greek. I become as one under the law, though uh, myself not under the law, though under the law of Christ. Go read 1 Corinthians 9. Even Paul, gospel by faith alone, says, I'm under the law of Christ. I'm under authority. I'm under a Lord. And I think we've perverted that. It says, I can do whatever I want because I, I did the deed. I ascend to the facts. Well, nowhere in the New Testament will you find that. But yet we have this idea that if, if you speak of any commands, you're a legalist. And it's true. We're not under the law of Moses, but... If you're in Christ, you're under his life-giving word that produces righteousness in you. He gives you new desires so that you hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's God's will, God's character, God's kingdom. You now are transformed from the inside out, and your heart aligns with God's heart and is being more and more aligned. If you're going to follow him, that's what he's going to do to you. This is why Jesus goes on in verse 19 and says, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom. That's that's what we read in James. They're not just merely a hearer, they're a doer. Well, what does he mean by relaxing the least of the commandments? Well, he expounds upon it, and this is where we're going to go in our subsequential sermons. He expounds upon anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies. And he's basically going to contrast, hey, I'm bringing a wholeness. I'm bringing the law of Moses to its fullness. And I'm teaching you how to truly follow God and be his people. You need to see him in light of me. He's unpacking what we know in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. This is the way. Follow me. Do you get that? Do you see that? Whoever, whoever does them and teaches them are going to be called great in the kingdom. And he's not talking about a hierarchy amongst us. He's saying you're, you're, you're all going to be great. You're going to be heirs of the kingdom. You're going to be sons and daughters of God. That's what he gets at, that beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. You'll be a son or a daughter of God, which means you're of God's family and you're going to look like your father. That's what I'm doing in you. That's why he says you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's saying you must look like your heavenly father who's whole and complete. 
He's light in and through. He's not one thing on, on the outside and, and something different on the inside. You must look like his children, and I will make you look like them. Follow me. You see that? Follow me. So there's not some elite class of Christians. They're, the great in the kingdom are his disciples who follow Christ's example and teaching. They are those who bear the virtues of the kingdom, the Beatitudes. And they teach others to do likewise. And as we follow Christ in this way, this is what he means. He says, you'll be the salt of the earth. You'll be the light of the world. You'll be like a city set on a hill which everyone can see. And you'll be calling people up, come, come up here. But you've got to come up here. You've got to come follow. You've got to join us. And as you imitate Christ by faith, you believe his words. And you say, I believe you, Jesus. Help my unbelief, but I'm going to keep following you. And sometimes as we're following the herd and the, and the sheep, we're going through some foggy territory. And I can't see anything. But all I can do is hear his voice. Just come follow me, come follow me. In other words, everything you read in the scripture, come, listen. This is the path. This, I can't see Jesus. Just listen and obey. Come, 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 come. That's faith, brothers and sisters. That's faith that works. And he promises that he's going to bring us through the rivers, through the valleys, the shadow of death, and into his beloved kingdom. So maybe you're here today and you've never understood what true Christianity is about. You thought prior to this morning that it's just about showing up and getting your good deed in, trying hard maybe not to cuss, or you know the saying, don't drink or chew or date girls who do. Maybe that's the, you know, the code of ethics you're trying to live by. I, I don't know. Maybe you prefer those type of women. I, I, you know, that's... But Jesus is offering you a better righteousness. He's offering you a way toward life. He's offering you a righteousness and eternal life for all who place their trust in him. And say, I'll, I'll, I'll put myself under your word. Even though I don't know exactly where this is going to go, I'm trusting you bring me to the kingdom. You bring life to me. You breathe life into me. See, Jesus offers a transformation of your heart to change your loves, to change your desires, to change how you live so that you truly live a blessed life. Not only in this life, but in the one to come. And so if you're tired of living your way, if you're tired of trying to, to fix the brokenness of your life in your way and, and doing it on your terms, and you hear what Jesus is saying, you say, yes, I want a king, I want a master, I want a savior like that one. He says, come. Come, follow me. And if you believe that, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried and he rose again, that this prophet did what he said he would do and proved to be the one who speaks the word of God. If you believe that, then demonstrate your faith. As I like to say, putting on the team jersey. 
following him in the waters of baptism. That's the first command. He says, you want to follow me? Be baptized in my name and come follow me. That's what he extends and he says, and I will give you life, eternal life. And I will bring comfort and satisfaction to your soul. And I'll bring satisfaction where the world has never brought you satisfaction. It's always left you in disappointment. But we have a hope that will never disappoint, right, brothers and sisters? And if you believe who he is, who he says he is, he's the son of God, the maker of heaven and earth, that he took your sins upon his shoulders on the cross, that he rose again, if you believe that, demonstrate that faith by confessing with your mouth, with your lips, verbally, Jesus, your Lord. And believe in your heart that Christ or God raised him from the dead. Confess that I have not submitted to your rule. I have submitted to my own life, my own way of doing. And confess that you have now a desire to submit your life under him and ask him to forgive you of all your sins. And he says, I will. I will cleanse you. And I'll bring you into my kingdom. And you can do that right here, right now, today. If you're serious about that, come talk to me. Uh, we'll have pastors, so elders, man the doors. We won't, like, keep you from leaving or something like that. But we're going to be available. And you can talk to me or one of the other pastors standing at the doors. Say, I want to follow Jesus. I'm a sinner and I need him. And I want him to change my heart. I want him to cleanse me of all my sins. I want him to give me new desires and new loves and and I want to be a part of that kingdom that will never be shaken. And we'll have good news and say, you can come. You can come. So with that word, let's stand. And uh, I guess I need to pray to give you all time to get up here. Stand. But um, don't wait. Don't wait to have a righteousness of your own that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. You'll never get there. Come today and let him give you a righteousness that gives you life, eternal life, life everlasting. We're going to sing in Christ the solid rock. I'm not going to pray. This, let this be our prayer together, our confession. Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Colin, lead us, brother. Amen.